Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I grew up wanting to be an opera singer, and then in high school, I discovered the writings of Oliver Sacks. And all of a sudden, I had two passions, opera and neuroscience. And for a very long time, I kept those two lives very separate. But in the past 10 years, there's been an explosion of interest in the intersection between art and science. And one of the pioneers leading the way in this revolution is Susan Magsamen. She's the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab, Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Yep, that actually exists. She's also the co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint, which is this ambitious project to try to figure out exactly how neuroscience and the arts connect and how they can push each other forward. And recently, she wrote a book with another exceptional woman, Ivy Ross, who's the vice president of design for hardware product at Google, where she leads a team that has won over 225 design awards. Together, they wrote a book called Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Susan and Ivy. It's so great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with this premise of the difference between arts and science. You know, so often we actually think of them as polar opposites, that one does not have anything to do with the other. There are often silos in the art world that reject uh, the objectivity and reproduce, you know, kind of reductionism of science and vice versa, that, that there are people in the science world who think the arts are too wishy-washy and not something ripe for uh, scientific investigation. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, Susan, I'm more familiar with your work long term on this. So I wanted to start with you and ask you about, um, uh, you know, across your career in terms of building the Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins, you know, what, how, how have you address this tension? And does it still exist? Is it getting less uh, prevalent? What do you think? It's a great question. Uh, I, I think I'll start by saying that 
I'm married to a neuroscientist, and so I really think we've perfected this idea of the marriage of arts and science, and they need each other. So without question, um, you know, you could talk about the yin-yang, uh, opposites attracting, but they're really two sides of the same coin. I find science and scientists to be among the most creative and curious people that I know, um, only maybe slightly second to artists. Um, you know, artists have always intuitively understood the way the arts change us, and uh, they have, in any art form, consistently used the arts to improve our health and well-being, to make us think about things that we maybe hadn't pushed ideas into the zeitgeist. And I think uh, what we're seeing now through the evolutions around technology and the way science can explore things non-invasively is the why and the how the arts change us. But these are really bi-directional, co-created conversations and research. So we do a lot of work at interdisciplinary uh, studies to be able to understand what I like to call ways of knowing and bringing together neurobiology, neuroscience, cognitive science, but also public health, the arts. And increasingly, uh, I have been talking a lot about lifting up technology as a really important catalyst for research, for intervention, and for dissemination and scaling. You know, I think one of the big misconceptions people have about artists, and maybe this comes from the way arts are taught in school, is that there isn't rigor. And in fact, as you kind of in intimated, the professional artists that I know are even more, uh, you know, pay more attention to detail, are even more kind of, you know, driven to strive for perfection and, and accuracy, whatever that might be um, in their art form than the scientists I know. I mean, there's a, there's a real kind of iterative nature to it, a very serious way of approaching the work. And so I wonder, Ivy, as someone who, you know, came up with a design background, you know, you you went to um, design school and, and you worked in the fashion industry and you, you know, are a, a, a celebrated jewelry maker. Can you speak a little bit to, you know, this misconception of the artist as a flighty you know, <laughs> character and, and, and how incorrect that actually yes. is? Well, you know, there's been a lot of research on getting into the flow state, which I think is what you're describing, you know, when you are really um, engaged in the making of something, you lose a sense of time and it's it's feeding your brain and body. And so I know having started as a craftsman person, <laughs> um, I would, when I was deeply engaged in the making, I was connected on a whole different level and there was no time. And and it was serious and it was detailed work. But what we talk about in the book is that, you know, there's the serious artist and then there's the common man that can do art without judgment. And that is something we're really trying to get people to understand that whether you're making art or witnessing it, beholding it, it is doing the same thing to your brain and body and how nourishing and good it is for you. I know that I would never have to take vitamins. People say I had endless energy. And I think it was because I was walking around in this aesthetic mindset, you know, making things, paying attention to the aesthetics that were all around me. So when Susan approached me about what science was now discovering, it was, as she had said, I know that, but that's like 
we know that as makers. Um, but wow, it's so amazing that now neuroscience can prove it because the information needs to get in the hands of everyone for our own health and well-being. And maybe I would just add to that really quickly that the mythology and the things that society has told us are, in many cases, about the arts just wrong. You know, if you're not talented by third grade, you shouldn't be doing it, that you have to be good at it to have an impact. And I mean, I talk about this idea that doodlers are more analytical, they retain information better, they're more focused than non-doodlers. And it turns out that something like coloring and simple drawing can uh, really increase you know, executive function, which is super important when you're talking about getting organized and having sort of that conductor in your head. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to follow up and talk about that more uh, specifically. But, you know, what you're talking about reminds me of, um, you know, Susan Rogers' uh, recent book. We had her on the podcast back in December about, you know, how music listening aficionados are often not thought of as musicians, even though, you know, they are highly attuned to music. Or David Byrne, who um, in his book, How Music Works, bemoans the death of the amateur musician, how sad it is that you know, people think that, you know, they shouldn't, if they're not, as you mentioned, really good at it, continue to play and that and that they could actually reap a lot of benefits from that. Yeah, it's really true. Yeah. And, you know, in my running, running even design groups and corporations, I early on 20 years ago was putting designers in sound chairs with headphones, having them listen to music 20 minutes a day with binaural beats and to justify the cost of the sound chairs to the company, I gave, had them take a creativity test before they started listening to music for six weeks, 20 minutes a day, and then after, and increased the level of creativity by 18%, which anything over 10% is significant. So um, I've been playing with these concepts intuitively for years now. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about sort of these executive functioning benefits, because I think for a, a lot of our listeners, they might not uh, be fully aware of what executive functioning is and, and why it's such a useful skill set of cognitive tools to sharpen. And and, and in fact, you know, so I, I would argue that, um, you know, executive functioning, which, uh, you know, is sort of what the, the kinds of um, cognitive tasks that help us stay motivated, help us strategize and plan and get, you know, meet our goals. It's the kind of deliberate thinking that is largely driven by the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. And those are the kinds of skills that are often thought to be missing in artists, right? Um, this idea that, like, they can't meet a deadline or they can't, you know, get their lives together. Um, so Susan, I, or either, you, either one of you, or maybe both of you, do you want to talk a little bit about the role of executive functioning skills in in the arts? Uh, and what is this relationship between this kind of not amateur, but kind of everyday art, art, arting, <laughs> doodling, what have you, and the development of these skills? Well, I'll just say, isn't it ironic that corporations are hiring people now because they're innovative, because they have the capacity for creativity, because they can think outside of the box and um, are agile? And all of those are the things that schools are taking out of the curriculum. So, you know, we're, we're talking about this end game of being highly intuitive, highly creative, and at the same time, we don't value it in our educational systems. And I think there's something really, there's a real disconnect there. 
you know, I guess I, I would start by saying that our brains are structured to build new connections and to constantly evolve. And this is from the time we're, you know, really little, really young children. And so if educational systems are set up to help us memorize and have rote memory and recall, that's not going to help us build strong synaptic neural pathways that are agile and that are expanding and, and are growing. So neuroplasticity, when it comes to learning, is really the name of the game. And I think executive function, as you were talking about, is a part of that prefrontal where you're learning about things like or you're developing capacities and I think skill around self-regulation and self-expression. And Charles Lim's work where he looks at improvisation versus practice and being kind of the judge, the the critic of yourself versus the flow state or the improvisational state is really interesting because both of those things are actually prefrontal. Another point to make here is that in learning, we learn things better if they're salient, if they're memorable, if they're things that matter to us. And whether you're good at it or not, does it uh, have the same uh, balance as what's salient to you? So uh, we know it's that's, and that's a really important point is that you don't, you can love singing, you can love writing poetry, you can love this idea of, you know, being in a, in a play or, or do it and not be good at it, but it's so meaningful to you that you learn it, you remember it, you recall it, you use it, which is what, what you want learning to be at, it, at its, at its very, very best. And also I think when you think about learning, and environments, you have to think about neurodivergent brains. And, you know, neurodivergence um, is now what I consider to be a social justice issue. There are underreported probably 40% or more of us in the world that are considered neurodivergent. So how do you create environments, these enriched environments that are the Goldilocks, right? Not too much, not too little, just right for our brains so that we can optimize our potential. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm I'm be, I'm becoming a, a, a neuro uh, diver, diversity social justice warrior. That's like been becoming a really big part of my passion and my work um, because of all all the things that you described. And also, um, you know, Ivy at Google actually, I feel like there has been some significant strides in uh, accommodating neurodiversity. Uh, maybe we could talk about that uh, a little bit. But I wondered if you could also talk about you know, the nonlinear path to getting better at these skills. So as as Susan mentioned, you know, sometimes people spend a lot of time doing something they're passionate about, and they still don't, quote, unquote, they're not very good at it, whether you know, wh whoever de determines that whether that's society valuing it or their own, um, you know, inner critic. But usually, in my experience, those kinds of gains are not linear. They're, they, they, they're stepwise, that you can sort of languish on a plateau for a while and then suddenly make a leap. And what seemed impossible now suddenly becomes possible. I wonder if you could speak a little bit, maybe, I mean, now I've asked you 15 different questions. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop there and let you jump in with what you think is most interesting. Well, you know, doing the art form, I think what we have to do is change people's mindset about it's not about the end product and, and judging what you've done. It's about the doing and understanding that the doing is doing a lot for your body and mind and soul. Whereas I think right now people give up certain practices because they haven't gotten there yet. And I agree with you. Sometimes just the 
patience and persistence will get you to another level. Things all of a sudden start to connect. But what we hope um, the book teaches people is that just that act of doing is all you need to do and make it fun. And, you know, really the way people now exercise, I mean, if you were to pick an art form and just engage in it for 20 minutes a day, I mean, the world would be very different. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I and I think if we can take away this pressure to be perfect or, you know, that, yeah, art for art's sake uh, can come back in, I think that would make also those 20 minutes more enjoyable. I think a lot of times, like, uh, you know, people write to me and they say, oh, you know, I've been practicing the piano every day for so many years and I'm just not getting any better. And I'm like, but you're practicing the piano every day for 20 years. Like, <laughs> doesn't yeah, that, matter that's if you're doing... getting any better. <laughs> Like, right. That's doing. But if people understood that what that's doing to their brain, they would accept it more. You know, Susan and I went back and we interviewed um, folks from indigenous tribes because in the past we didn't have that word art. The arts w were life. It was culture, singing, dancing, painting in caves. They, that just is the way life was lived. And I think we went so far from that because we started to optimize for productivity, the industrial revolution, and we pushed those arts, which we're really wired for as a elitist um, practice or a nice to have. And look at where we are in society, right? Mental health is, is greater problem than physical health. And so I think when we s explored that, it was like, wow, we need to find the happy medium here because we took that word art and made it a commercial venture, elitist, good art, bad art. And yet we were wired to do these kinds of arts all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I think maybe we'll circle back later to the neurodiversity piece, but I wonder if we could talk a little bit about sort of the whole idea of aesthetics. So, um, you know, in, in your book, you kind of, you know, there's this, this term that's been bandied around that this is the field of neuroaesthetics. And I think for, you know, for some people, aesthetics is synonymous with beauty, for others with meaning. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what do you mean by aesthetics and how is it that we can study it? So it's another really great word that I think has multiple meanings for different people. But in general, I think most people think of aesthetics as a style or taste. Um, some people think of it as beauty. Uh, but I think a very, you know, the, 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 the saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder fares out with neuroaesthetics, um, that my beauty is not your beauty or Ivy's beauty, that based on where we come from, how we, um, our childhood experiences, um, our cultures really change our life experiences, really change what we think is beautiful. And that work was, was born out of some early work in the late 1990s by someone named Samir Zeki, who, University of College London, who started to really understand from a visual systems point of view, what we thought was beautiful uh, was different from each other, but it was also part of the prefrontal cortex of where that was really sort of coming into shape. And, and we can talk about that again a little bit more too, as far as thinking about the default mode network and kind of what we each think is beautiful or what we think is meaningful, more importantly. Uh, neuroaesthetics is a big term, but it really, the way we define it in the work that I do at Hopkins and I think the field is now coming to understand is that it's really bigger than beauty, uh, bigger 
really bigger than beauty. And I think meaning might be a great term to add in here, but it is the study of how the arts and aesthetic experience measurably change the brain, body, and behavior. And then the second part of this is how that knowledge can be translated into specific practices that advance health and well-being. And I mean, I call that neural arts. Uh, we've been sort of populating this term around uh, neural arts uh, as, a, as a field where the research is neuroaesthetics. But any way you look at it is how can the arts in this domain be in service of humanity to help us feel better? And in any way, whether that's physical health, mental health, day-to-day -day stress, you know, we haven't talked about flourishing, but, you know, none of us just want to cope. We want to really thrive. And how do the arts and all of their forms and aesthetic experiences help us do that? And, you know, aesthetic experiences are things like nature. You know, when you're in nature or thinking about color or scent or sound or touch, those are all aesthetic experiences. And as Ivy said earlier, in some ways, we sort of uh, numbed ourselves to these aesthetic mindsets and we're very transactional, but we don't allow ourselves to bring these sensory experiences forward to really think more of a transformational kind of living. Yeah, I think we've gone flatline a little bit and we haven't focused on um, our sensory systems and how they make us feel alive and they actually keep us alive. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I wonder actually if you could talk a little bit about sort of the taste and style. I mean, as you, it, it, Ivy, you, you are in a sense a taste maker, or you have been in your career. You know, your work at the Gap and and at Google, even as a you know as a as a jewelry maker in the fashion world. So, can, can you tell us a little bit more about how you think about uh, taste, and you know its relationship to. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a, there's a social component to it, right? Like we want to feel like we have good taste and it sort of feels intuitive. And there's a kind of like the person with good taste is kind of elevated. But of course, taste changes. And there's nothing worse than thinking you have good taste, but realizing that you're out of date. 
how do you how do you approach this? I'm still issue? wearing jeans from high school, so don't say that. <laughs> oh, but they're totally back in style. They're like you can go and buy, you know, these like yeah, jeans from the '80s that are like li- li- uh, yeah, and of course, you know, yeah, so. '80s yeah, was not you, my high school <laughs> decade, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you hold on to things long enough, it comes full circle. Um, but no, you you bring up a good question. Um, having come from the fashion industry, we were all trained to really look at societal trends and tie that back to what people might be craving at certain times as society moved through certain cycles. Even color, for example, during times when things were a little depressed, you watch and bright colors were what people were craving. So I became interested in, you know, people would say to me, how could you be in fashion? It's so frivolous. And it's not. I was an art major and psychology minor, and I was always fascinated with why people would gravitate towards certain things. And so that has always been a common thread. And I think the taste, um, you know, Susan and I did an experiment at Milan and Salone where we had people walk through three different rooms with different colors, scents, sound, textures, art, and with a with wearing a band that had sensors so that we were people were able to, at the end, see how their bodies were feeling in these different aesthetic environments. And the aesthetic environment that their mind thought it liked the best, over 50% of the time, was not the one their body felt most comfortable in. And that was, that was, that was the aha, is that we're feeling all the time and sensing things. And so people wanted to know, was that the right room? Like, what is the what is the room that has the best taste or the best style? And from someone that has had to create um, things, hopefully in good good style, it was great for me to say it's not. It's there is no right answer. It's about what felt good to you. And so I really do believe that that I love people who have their own sense of style if it's fully who they are. If they could tap into using it as self-expression. Um, that said, my job as a design lead is to work with my team to sense what's coming uh, and what people might be craving emotionally or tactility-wise or color-wise and really play into that because what you want is, and do that with good taste, or you know, and everyone has their own style. Mine, tends to be less is more, so a little more minimal. So yes, there are threads of style that go across everything. But for example, the work at Google, we really are doing technology electronics um, with soft curves, which we know people um, respond to better because it's something we've seen in nature and more, more texture versus one material. So there are conscious things that we do as designers that... Um, because I think designers have antennas up and they are con- making these connections and sensing all the time what wants to emerge. And our job then is to create that and offer it up to the public. So, and it I, is, it's fair to say, I was say, it's fair to say you are bringing neurobiology research and evolutionary bio research out into the way people think about design. You're, you're starting to merge those worlds more. Yes, that, yes, I think that is, um, what people are craving is to have a, a 
a reaction when they look at an object or something? And why not make it beautiful or make it desirable? Or we even when we do consumer research now, the designers start with after they create a product or a form, what's the emotion that they hope a person will feel when they see the object or pick up the phone or put on the watch? What what are those emotional words? And then when we bring it into focus groups, the researchers come back to us with a cloud, a word cloud of what people said and the joy and delight when what someone says when they first put on that digital watch or even pick up that phone, if it matches the designer's intent, you know, it, it's like, wow, it's very exciting. Because I think that's what you want to do is you want to transmit an emotion through these objects that we design. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that, um, you know, if you think about sort of design thinking, which is a, a type of strategy used to teach uh, designers how to, you know, how to thrive in their jobs. And, and the very first element is empathy, right? Empathize with your end user um, so that there's this emotional component to it. Um, yeah, and we've actually now we t- we talk about design feeling instead of design mm. thinking. Oh, I think interesting. That's the next the next evolution huh. because design thinking is absolutely a way a designer has to think because design is about solving problems for people, and so you have to have empathy with the person you're solving the problem for, and so that's table stakes. So the layer that we've added on now is this idea of design feeling. What do you want people to feel? as well as having solved the functional problem. And of course, that's that's the whole, for many artists, the whole goal of whatever art they, they make is to evoke an, a reaction, emotion, usually. Um, uh, and, and so, I, but there is this also, as you, as you were mentioning, very subjective uh, uh, element of it, right? So like the designer might think that they're go- designing a, a, an object that will have a pr- particular reaction. And sometimes, maybe even often, it doesn't provoke that reaction or not for everyone. And of course, that kind of individual variability traditionally has been problematic for neuroscientists who are interested in looking and making you know, general principles and, and looking at large samples of people. I wonder, Susan, if you could talk a little bit about how the neuroaesthetics approach solves the problem of individual variability and subjectivity if it does. So, you know, when you were talking about um, evoking an emotion as a as an artist, I think professional artists are maybe more, um, that's their job to evoke a certain feeling. But I think there's also self-expression where you're putting something out and you may not be putting it out to evoke an expression from someone else, but to gain empathy and understanding. And I'm seeing that a lot now with youth mental health, where a youth are wanting to share how they feel in a safe environment and a lower risk environment. And so I think it depends on, I think of this field often as the elephant in the room, and depending where you touch it, you get something really different. If you're a professional artist, your job is to evoke emotion, maybe. If you're someone who's making, needs to share something, you're expressing, and maybe you're not trying to get someone to feel what you're feeling, you're just, you're really trying to get it out. And and I think the maker and the beholder relationships are very symbiotic, but they're also different depending upon why you're making something and why you're you're beholding something. Your question about the individual variability, I think what researchers have done is actually say that is true, 
And while we know some things about the neurobiology of how the arts might work, individual difference, I think, is one of the strengths. And so to me, it's about personalization. It's about customizing. It's about creating environments that work for you and not necessarily these generalized um, spaces or consensus statements that are so blanket that they, you know, like, like I didn't mention curves. We do know uh, evolutionarily that we are, we like curves. We like curved spaces behind us and a horizon in front of us. We, we like the things that are, you know, that we can cup because our hands can hold them or, you know, we, we do know certain things. And I think they're interesting design principles and there's a, researcher at Hopkins that did some great work on curves versus lines and his name is Ed Connor. And what he found was that there was a particular kind of curve that that most people gravitated towards. And it turned out that it was very similar to an arc curve and the sculptor. And so I, I think there are some things that we know universally, but to underscore individuality is actually really important. So, and you can do, you can create individuality in lots of space, lots of places and spaces. Uh, you know, this idea of intentional design, uh, I think is something that's going to be more and more prevalent as we um, start to understand how we bring the world in so differently. Which goes along with personalized medicine, right? I think it makes perfect sense. And and what we found through interviewing a lot of folks is this idea of using the arts to just personalize, per, personally express what's inside instead of repressing it is a big piece of why the arts work. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, I want to lean into that a little bit in terms of the relationship with health, because I think that some some of the mistakes that have been made early on in this arts and health field is this idea that oh you know listening to instrumental uh, classical music makes me feel calm so we should just you know pump it through all the hospital rooms and everybody will feel calm and of course like that's not true for some people it's quite triggering it can make them feel alienated and and. Uh, so, so I wonder if you could speak a little bit to sort of let, let, let's talk about some of the ways um, the, the, the more recent research on the impact of arts on our health and well-being um, and sort of the, the role that personalization plays in that. Sure. Well, and I, I think you, you make a really, really great point when you talk about that, you know, this field is early where we're really looking to apply the arts in health in particular. And I think there's been a lot of really great intention um, and sometimes, you know, that hasn't really um, been um, proven. There's also, I think it's super important to say, is that the arts and health are not well-funded. The research is not well-funded. The practitioners are not well-funded. The architecture and design, the training is not well-funded. So we are an army of really amazing people, artists and practitioners, who I think are really doing their very best to figure out how you bring this forward with not enough resources. And so... You know, that, that's something that there's a lot of work around the world trying to really build this field so there are ample financial resources. There's a sustainable model to be able to build this field. But we do know some things, right? We do know that singing really helps people with dementia and that can it can improve cognition and certainly co uh, quality of life. We, we know that dancing helps people with Parkinson's disease and stroke and other motor related disorders. And we've seen it improve gait and cognition and sleep and mood. 
And just to put a spotlight on Parkinson's for a moment, uh, the folks at Mark Morris have something called uh, Dance for PD. And in the pandemic, most of the time, it's all over the country and, and now really all over the world. But if you had Parkinson's, you would need to go to a dance studio to dance. So maybe you'd go once a week and you'd have to get on a bus or a train or take an Uber. And there's a lot of effort to do that. The progress that people made and the, the sense of accomplishment was really huge. And they used multiple dance dances to elicit different types of movement. Community was built really very positive. During COVID, people couldn't go to the dance studios, so they used technology, Zoom, to start to promote it online. And people started dancing, more people all over the world. They danced more often, like every day. Sometimes people would dance more than one day. Family members danced with them. And what they started to see was that this idea around dose and dosage became something they could study. So people's cognition improved dramatically, sleep improved dramatically, gait improved dramatically for longer periods of time. So now um, researchers are looking at the data coming out of those COVID uh, experiences to really try to better understand what's happening with these kinds of uh, Parkinson's-based um, uh, disease and disorders that are really affecting millions of people all over the world. So that, that's a really interesting example. Chronic pain is another one where virtual reality is being used pretty consistently. Um, there's a great product uh, that's on the market called Snow World that uses coal. It uses cold. So that's a universal thing, cold. And, and, and then it also uses humor and storytelling and really sticky graphics. So the theory here is that distraction allows people to um, not have as much pain when bandages are being changed with burn in burn units and in other areas, which also allows you to use less pain medication. So these are just a couple examples of some of the things that we're seeing in healthcare, but there's many more. Yeah, I wonder, Ivy, if you could speak a little bit to um, this future of virtual reality. On the one hand, it opens up a whole uh, set of interventions for people who maybe aren't as mobile or, you know, on the other hand, it's expensive and, you know, not everyone's going to have access to VR. And also it can be isolating. Um, and and we, during the pandemic, I think, recognized how powerful in-person interaction is. So wh wh where are you thinking, you know, as a, as a design lead at Google, yeah. as, as an artist yourself, you know? So, what, I mean, I... I view technology as here to um, amplify our humanity. That's the way I like to see it. And in some cases, and anything has its polar opposites, right? In terms of it's all about how you use it. Um, so for example, the amazing things that we were able to do now online and affect millions of people at once versus you know not being able to connect. And I think... I know at Google, we're mostly all hybrid now, which is, I, I like to have the saying, it's not either or, it's both and. So I think that's where the answer lies is we have to be together. And there are times when we need to be um, alone together uh, in our individual environments. But I think um, technology is going to do some amazing, you know, we're talking about the fact that we're not going to even just look at a painting anymore. We're going to walk into it. And there's a lot of art that has already started to come forth where you have the experience of walking into the painting and 
that is igniting so many more senses than just looking at the painting. So I think it's really about balance. I don't want to live a life where I'm living it in the headset, but there are times, as Susan pointed out, where it's amazing to, because the brain will communicate to the body as if it's in that place, and especially in health and wellness, um, to be able to send signals to the brain that you are there in the cold and so don't feel the pain of the heat is phenomenal. So as long as, you know, my team and I, we always look at it as what can technology do that takes certain things off of our hands that can be done mechanically that allows us as humans to then do only what humans can do. But I also think now with some of the development um It'll actually provide new experiences for us. Like I just mentioned, walking into a painting that we haven't had the ability to do. So like everything, it's all about moderation and both end. You know, you make me think about set and setting related to psychedelics. You know, like set and setting is really about how do you prepare someone for an experience and how do you help them move through an experience and then integrate at the back end. Psychedelics are an extraordinary tool, but there's also a downside to psychedelics, right? Um, same is true with technology. They're an amazing tool and there's also cautionary tales about that. I think that's true for a lot of things. Um, and so how do you manage risk and thinking about that? But set in some ways, I was just, I had this hit that set and setting and the and aesthetics are kind of what we're talking about. How do you create these containers and this capacity with our sensorial systems and the different art forms to be able to help us move through the world. And whatever aids that is really, um, you know, helpful. Now, we know that architecture, space changes the way you think. So, um, and I've seen this time and time again with design teams, you know, we change the, the building that we're in, the amount of light, the scale, the colors, and it changes the way we think as a group. Um, so this idea of set and setting and space, even architectural space, uh, profoundly changes our brain and body. Yeah, I mean, everything has risks, right? Even falling in love uh, <laughs> has its pros <laughs> yes, and its cons, sure. right? Um, so I want to remind our listeners that uh, Susan Max Ammons and Ivy Ross's book, Your Brain on Art, is available at booksellers everywhere. And I wonder if you have a kind of last vision that you could share with us. Um, let's say we look out 10 years from now, you know, your book was a massive bestseller. Everybody's read it. Everybody's on board with this idea that the arts are important, that they can influence our health. We're starting to change our settings uh, to to make uh, contexts that are more uh, conducive to making art. Um, what does the world look like then? What is the best case scenario for you? that governments and the public sector support it, that they put enough money into the research and the practice so that people can really have vibrant careers in this area and that there's great education and training for this work and that we continue to think of it as a science and an art. So it gets funded the way the Brain Initiative gets funded and other things, and, and in this country, but all, but all over the world. And I think the more that we can develop uh, ongoing sensorial literacy in schools early on. We bring the arts back into schools. So we see it as, as Ivy said, indigenous cultures, which there are 500 plus indigenous cultures still in the world 
that use the arts as every day becomes part of the fabric of our lives. I think the end result is a, a much more truly integrated whole humanity. And, and I think it's possible. I mean, I think it's really within our reach. Well, Susan and Ivy, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank our longtime supporters. We could not get to 400 without you. David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.